Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. Uh, we read the prophet Isaiah because he's pointing forward to Christ. And upon Christ, our sin, our iniquity, has been dealt with. And one of the things that we need to understand by that prophecy in Isaiah that we read was that he heals us from our sin. The overall problem of humanity is not that we need motivation. It's not that we're just lazy. It's not that we don't have jobs. It's not that whatever the political world tells us, the overall dilemma with humanity is this, un, how, would I, how would I say, it's an unfortunate cause of sin and turmoil. And the only way it can be absolved and be atoned for is through the crushing of, of it through blood. And so when we look at Hosea in chapter 8, we see these idols that begin to prevail. Last week we talked about the first aspect of why, closes, why God closes the case over Israel. The first aspect was that Israel had other leaders that they put. God didn't put them. God didn't uh, assign them. And these leaders, what did they end up doing? If you were here last week, you would know that that these leaders went to other countries and other nations for help. That's what verse 7 says in, in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7. It says that they sowed into the wind, but they reaped the whirlwind. So they allied themselves or put themselves in allegiance with other countries, thinking that they were going to help them, but in turn, they did it to their own demise. These countries came back and demolished Israel. And that's why God, first of all, says one of the biggest reasons I'm against you and I'm abandoning you at this moment is because you decided to align yourself and make yourselves allies with other nations. Now, the second part is what we're going to be talking about today, which is not only do they build these leaders that seek after other nations, now these leaders have gotten or have made the people of Israel worship false gods. It's this concept of idol worship. I know that it may be a foreign thing to you in, a, in our culture in the 21st century to think of people worshiping idols. In, in Hosea's time, this was a prevalent case. Even before the nations, Assyria uh, and, and the pre-Babylonians, uh, they all did this, the Canaanites. Everyone was involved with worship of an idol. This is prehistoric. We know this because we even see it in the records of humanity. People built up images of gods thinking that those images were going to be the ones that would sustain them and give them life. Some people built up images for, for gods that would provide rain, others for fertility, others for crops. But it was always this image concept that people kind of sought after to say, if we erect these images and worship these images, they will sustain us and give us life. That's the concept of idol worship. Something else will help us. All we need to do is offer them something. The interesting thing about it is that they themselves are the ones that built these idols and images. It, it, it kind of doesn't make any sense when you begin to reason with it with a mind of a human being. I'm making something to worship thinking that that thing that I made with my hands is going to end up helping me. That just doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense in our day and it doesn't make any sense didn't make any sense in the past yet that's what happened and though the idol worship is a kind of a prehistoric 
uh, type of understanding, it's still very prevalent in many of us in the image world, in the, in, in the physical world of having idols. It's still very much present in a lot of other churches and a lot of, a lot of other religions. Uh, yet, we're going to be talking about a deeper concern here as what Hosea says. So open your Bible to Hosea chapter 8. This is where we find God's final case against Israel. And we're going to be reading chapter 8, verse 4, the last part of verse 4 through verse 6. And it says at the last part of verse 4, With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Basically what it's saying, that any idol man builds, God will destroy. Any idol man builds, God will eventually destroy. And that's the same case now. You build up an idol, and God will bring it down. Because you made it. I like how the description here, it says a craftsman made it in verse 6. It's a skillful craftsman, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, but even those skillfully crafted idols will come to a destruction. But these plans that man made to erect great leaders for their, for their own benefit, for their own, uh, out of their own wisdom, these men, these men have led them to their destruction. They have gone astray after these men that provided allegiances with other nations and now are providing a new type of worship system. This is foreign to Israel. Israel is supposed to worship God. Israel is supposed to worship Yahweh, not idols. This is a foreign concept for them, but they're very much at home with them because when you have a puppet king, you are going to make puppet gods. And so this puppet king will be influenced by puppet nations that are at the mercy of God, and by so doing, they create puppet gods fake gods, idols made out of silver and gold. And you say, well, at least they're made out of silver and gold. They're worth something. But as verse 6 says, they shall be broken to pieces. These puppet kings now establish this new form of worship and guide the people into this worship of false gods. The concept here is always a deep understanding of what man truly desires. This has been a, a concept that we've known our entire time in existence. Man's number one problem, humanity's number one problem, other than sin, is this concept of driving to worship. What are you going to worship? What is it that's going to occupy your brain? What is it that's going to occupy your heart? This concept of worship digs deep, and that's why these idols prevail, because man, humanity, has striven to occupy their hearts with their own ingenuities. It's a, it's a common thing to think that even though it happened in the past, even though Israel was devising these plans to, to kind of... Uh, Feed their ego. We can do better than God. We can give better kings than God. We can make better idols than God. We can make better gods than God. And in so doing, they fulfill that need of their heart, of their soul, to seek after worship. It, it is a big lie today. And don't leave here believing the lie that you don't worship. This is a true thing of every person. Everyone here worships. You either worship God or you worship something else. And in many times, you end up worshiping your own self. And you say, well, no, I don't make any idols for myself. I don't, I don't go to my bedroom and, 
and, and look at the mirror for three hours. Well, maybe a couple of minutes, but, but I don't go and I don't, I don't like bow down to myself. But you realize that everything revolves around you. You're seeking after everything. You're wanting everything from your, for your heart to satisfy your needs, your desires, your longings. And sometimes for those who are married, our spouses let us know, hey, remember me. Hey, think about me sometimes. It, eventually, we end up worshiping something else other than God. The question is, you got to ask yourself today, who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God? Are you worshiping yourself? Are you worshiping other things? Is it money? At the end of the day, it's usually always about money. Can I, can I make more money? Can I retire at 45? Oh, that would be great. If I could just retire at 45, go to the Bahamas, and relax the rest of my life. What are we worshiping, and what are we after? And whatever that is that is not God, I want you to get this very clearly here today. Whatever it is that we worship that is not God is an idol that we have erected, and eventually we will be demolished. See, these idols don't fall by themselves. Although they are nothing, although they are man-made, although they are just flimsy man-made objects or man-made thoughts, they don't fall by themselves. God destroys them. And they'll be there your entire life. They'll be sitting at the throne of your heart your entire life. But one day, God will destroy them. That's why the New Testament is very clear on this. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No other. No other person, no other thing, no other puppet God will take its place. And so we find this in the soul, in the heart of man that needs to be healed, that needs to be getting rid of. God needs to occupy the throne of God's heart. And this is where the teachings of Jesus clearly confronts the person. See, this was dealt with about 900 years before Jesus comes into the scene. And when Jesus comes into the scene, I want you to go very quickly to Matthew. I just want you to read this very quickly. It's a beautiful passage. We all know this. Matthew chapter 6. This is halfway through his Sermon on the Mount, the beautiful Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. And look at what Jesus says in verse 19 of chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a very simple verse, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. What, what are we attacking here? What is Jesus Christ going after? Your heart. Jesus Christ is digging deep into your heart. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, if, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? No one, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Ouch. Jesus attacks the heart, goes after the heart. See, we don't worship Jesus with our brains. We don't worship Jesus with external devotions. We don't worship Jesus with a ritualistic worship element. It's not just clapping. It's not just raising up our hands in worship because that looks a little bit more holier. It's not singing the songs that we play. It, those are external uh, uh, extractions of worship kind of. Some of them come from a genuine heart, and when that comes from a genuine heart, they are elements of worship. But that in itself is not the worship. It's what's in the heart. 
that Jesus so desires. And if you keep reading Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels, if you read Jesus' life, Jesus always attacks the external elements of religion. And he has a big problem with people showing religion on the surface and having nothing to show for it on the inside. That's why Jesus says, go seek righteousness. Clean your heart, you hypocrites. So Jesus is worried about the heart. And these heart issues is where we build these idols. The throne of idols in the past were erected in high places visible to all. And the more high places that you would have, the more altars where you would sacrifice to these gods, the more visible you would have them around the country. It was always in your mind and therefore always directed to your devotion. These people in Israel began to erect idols and lift these idols up and it was always around them. They were devoted to these idols in worship, and mistakenly, they always thought that these idols were the ones providing their health, their prosperity, and their security. Little did they know that God was going to come full force and destroy, destroy all of these idols. Judgment here in Hosea chapter 8, in this closed case of Hosea, it comes and it falls on the house of God. God comes hard first on the leadership for making people go astray and look for other nations for help instead of going to God. And then it comes hard for reason number two, which is what we're talking about today, idolatry. Psalms 127 Verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds his house, those who build it labor in vain. Israel was lifting up a house, was establishing a kingdom, but God was not there. And the builders were building in vain. It needs to be God. God needs to build the house. God needs to be the center of our devotion. So so when we come to this, the, these verses in this chapter, we have to understand what it's talking about. Why, why is God so angry at this idolatry concept? Verse 6 says, For it is from Israel, a, a craftsman made it. It is not God, the calf of Samaria. What does that mean? What calf? What, what are they talking about? The wonderful image that, that our creative team drew up. I think you could see it. Oh, well, it was up there earlier. It's a golden calf. It was an idol that these people made. And what's the reference to? I want you guys to understand this reference because the calf of Samaria represents Israel's beginning of devoted worship to idols. Although they did this prior to it, this marks a a, a moment in time in Israel's history where they began to be, instead of a, a, a people that worship Yahweh, Israel became calf worshipers. That, that, that just even sounds weird. That, that doesn't even feel right to say that Israel, God's people, were calf worshipers. So let's Let's dig in a little bit, and the reason why you're here is to know more about the Bible. So let's dig in a little bit and understand what this means and what's the reference to this and why God is so upset at idol worship. So once again, we're going to be jumping back and forth in the Word of God because I'm very conscious that I'll rarely ever get the opportunity to teach the entire Old Testament. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to live for 90 years. So... Because of that, I use as much as I can from the Old Testament to kind of give you guys a, a comprehensive understanding of what God is saying in these brief verses. So I want you to understand what this historical reference means. What is the calf of Samaria and why is God so upset? So we can go to 1 Kings. We're going to go back a couple of pages, three to four hundred pages. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, sit with somebody that knows their Bible and ask them for some help. And we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 
We're going to start here because this is, a, this is crucial to our understanding of what's going on. This is about 600 years prior to what we're talking about in Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 29. Midway through the paragraph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it in twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes. Okay, so what does that mean, and what does it have to do with the calf of Samaria? So here we have the beginning of the divided kingdom. I have referenced this time and time again during the teaching of Hosea, but I want to give you guys actually now the, the actual spot where we find what this means. And here is the division of the kingdom, and God sends this prophet to Jeroboam to tell him, you, Jeroboam, will be the king of the northern tribes. As a matter of fact, he tells him you're going to take care of 10 of the tribes of, of Israel and you're going to be able to be the king over any part of this land in any, in any place and I will be with you. Jeroboam was not an heir to the throne. He was just a skillful man. Jeroboam was the heir to the throne, which was Solomon's son. So what time are we in? Saul, first king of Israel. David, second king of Israel. Solomon, third king of Israel, boom, division. And here, the prophet says, Jeroboam, you're going to be the king of Israel. And although we're not going to reference it today, Jeroboam is going to be the king of Judah in the south. But we're going to be focusing on the king of Israel, which is Jeroboam. So he has promised the kingdom and that God will be with him. Look at verse 37. And I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Okay, so we get God's promises. All of us know here that when God promises something, God fulfills his promise, correct? It's God's word. This is not my word. If I promise you something, chances are I'm going to fail you. Most likely I'm going to fail. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll hook you up next time with, with something. Uh, I'll probably forget. Yeah, man, I'll call you. Yeah, chances are I'm going to forget to call you. But when God says something... He rarely ever forgets, and he stays true to his word. God says, I will be with you. I will build your house. You will prosper. God's giving him the kingdom. That's a sure thing. What are the stipulations? Only if you listen to me, you do all I command, you walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, and observe my commandments. Okay, I'm going to give you this house. I'm going to give you this kingdom. But the only thing you have to do is just, just do what I say. It's like a pretty simple inter inter interaction. It's just do as I tell you, and we're good. Now you may say, well, that's a little, yeah, in a human perspective, yeah, that's, that's off. But this is God. So when God tells you to do something, it's like there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's, okay, God, I will do it. Because it's God, it's not anyone else, it's not any human being saying this, it's not just another king, it's God. And he says, if you do this and observe my commandments, then I will build you a sure house. And then God is even more faithful and more critical and a little bit more trying to get Jeroboam to understand because verse 33, if you go back a little bit, verse 33 says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Estereth, the, god, the goddess of the Sidonians, 
Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statues and my rules as David, his father, had done. Okay, so just to clearing this up again, God tells Jeroboam, I'm going to give you these kingdoms, but you have to do my statues, you have to walk in my ways, and, and do as I say, and be right in my sight. The reason he's doing it and taking it away from the, from the Solomon, Solomonic kingdom is because Solomon didn't do what was right in the sight of God. You guys get it? So King Solomon, which is still at the throne at the moment, did not do what was right before God's eyes. As a matter of fact, he had about 700 wives and 300 concubines. And all of these wives and all of these women got Solomon to worship Astereth, and all of these other false puppet gods from the Sidonians, from the Moabites, and from the Ammonites. These were the product of a lustful king. And because this king failed God, God brought division to his kingdom. And he tells Jeroboam, this is why I'm giving it to you. So, so if you look at it and if you're understanding it at this moment, God is warning them, Jeroboam, what not to do. This is fair. I don't even want to use the word fair when we talk about God, but this is God being God. I'm going to give this to you, but you have to follow my rules because the only reason I am giving it to you is that the king before you has not obeyed. So the reasoning is fairly simple. Jeroboam, in his mind, should be, thank you, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be conscious of doing your will because you just took it away from King Solomon. So if I don't do what, what you say, then you're obviously going to take it away from me. So it just kind of makes sense, right? And, and it's God's word, so it just kind of makes sense for Jeroboam to be like, I'm going to be on par, I'm going to just do what you say, and then everything's going to be good. It would make sense for Jeroboam to do it, but the problem, once again, is what? What, what did we say in the beginning? The human condition, the heart, and this development of idols. Solomon failed. And God brought judgment to his house. And now Jeroboam steps up as the king of the north. And Jeroboam establishes this new concept of calf worship. He was not supposed to worship other gods, but he did. And so now we're going to go into the story of the calf of Samaria is in direct reference to the calf that Jeroboam has erected. Now I want to take the study in contrast a bit so that you understand what's going on at, at this moment. Jeroboam, if you just keep reading ahead with me in chapter 12, we find the division of the kingdom and, and Rehoboam is introduced, that is Solomon's son. And, and now we have this king, Jeroboam, taking charge of the ten tribes of Israel, but we see within him a lot of insecurities. Look at verse 25 in chapter 12 of 1 Kings. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Peniel. And Jeroboam, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then their heart of this people will turn again to their Lord and to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. All right. I know sometimes the Bible is it's a little, we don't understand what's going on, but that's why I'm, I'm helping you navigate these, these difficult waters. Jeroboam develops or shows, demonstrates, the frailty of humanity. Humanity has the tendency to doubt everything. Everything must be doubted. Nothing is sure. Have you ever heard that? Like, don't, like question everything. 
And to a certain extent, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, question, certain things should be questioned. What shouldn't be questioned? God's word. God's word should never be questioned. You can question me all you want. Go for it. But you should never question God's word. You should never be like, yeah, well, the Bible says that. But I think, once you say that, it's like, man, you know what? <laughs> just forget it. Like, let's just close the Bible and let's just have a conversation because we're not making, we, we cannot question God's word. But Jeroboam demonstrates the insecurities of man by wanting to exalt himself as a king forever. God already promised Jeroboam the kingdom. Didn't we just read that? We read that in chapter 11. God has given Jeroboam the kingdom. And he, he told him, the only thing you have to do is listen and obey and do what I say. But the kingdom is yours. God said, I will build you an everlasting house. I will build you the house. But Jeroboam has fear. He is afraid. He's insecure. And he doesn't find his security in God's word. So Jeroboam devises plans to find his own security. To a certain extent, Jeroboam listens to God's word uses God's word for his convenience because, hey, now he's sitting on the throne. Now he's got money. Now he's got riches. Now he's got it made. Now he's in the kingdom. If you read uh, most of his life in, in chapter 12 and chapter 13, he, he lifts up some wonderful-looking palaces like Jeroboam set for life. He's got riches until he dies. And he had God's word. But the word of God wasn't too secure for him. And so Jeroboam says in, in the verses that we read, he, he, he starts thinking, oh my God, if, if, if these people go back down to Jerusalem in the south and they start worshiping in Jerusalem where it was originally designed for the people of God to worship, oh my goodness, they're going to leave me. They're going to abandon our kingdom and they're going to go back to God. And they're not going to come to me. And they're going to take away my kingdom. And they're going to worship with, with God. And their new king is going to be Rehoboam. And they're going to come back and murder me. Did God ever say that? And what's the problem if God's people go back to God? Isn't that what's supposed to happen? Isn't that the sign of a good king to bring God's people to worship their God? Jeroboam's upset at this, and he's worried. And so Jeroboam, with his wonderful ingenuities, and if you read his life in chapter 11, it, the Bible describes him as a very intelligent man. He was in charge of all the, 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 the working household of, of Israel. So basically, he was like the... the, the COO, the chief operating officer of Israel, he was very intelligent, very understanding, and knew how to manage well. And so in this intelligence, Jeroboam seeks counsel. Look at what verse 28 says. So the king took counsel. That's smart, right? You, you don't know what to do. Things are getting out of hand. And so you look for counsel. And you get advice. And what was the advice he got? So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have, gone up, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So what is he doing here? Jeroboam seeks counsel. He's a smart guy. And he seems like, well, I got to sit down with my board. I got to sit down with my intelligent men and we got to figure this thing out because if people end up going back to Judah, they're going to leave the kingdom and they're going to worship their God. Something's got to stop. The board says, obviously gives them advice to build two idols. Hey, if you build two idols, one in the north and one in the south, people will have no excuse to go back down to Jerusalem and they will worship these idols. And so Jeroboam says, that's a brilliant plan. Let's get silver and gold, and let's make these idols. And then he tells them, you have no need to go back down to Jerusalem because now you can worship 
here. And then he says, with the audacity, here are your gods. The ones who saved you from Egypt. And you're just like, really, bro? Really? These calves are the ones that Did we not just make these calves? Didn't we just put this silver and gold together? And he says, here they are. Worship them. If that's not stupid enough, the stupidity in all of it is that the people followed. Sometimes it's like, yeah, the, the leader is messed up and dumb, but the people sometimes just are dumber. They know that those calves didn't rescue them. But there they go, like sheep on the way to the slaughter, like we read in Isaiah chapter 53. He builds these, these calves, one in Dan, which is all the way in the north of Israel, and one in Bethel, which is five miles away from Jerusalem. Ain't no need to go down to Jerusalem to worship God. You can worship these calves. Now, why is this important? The importance of this comes deeper when we go even further. Because this is not the first time a calf appears in Scripture to supplement or to substitute insecurities in, our, in, in, in people's hearts towards God. Turn with me a little bit further back to the book of Exodus. And we have this wonderful incident in the book of Exodus. Most of us, when we hear the book of Exodus, we think about Moses and, and Egypt and, and stuff like that. And, and here's this wonderful, you know, the Ten Commandments. And, and here's this wonderful interruption in all of it. Chapter 32, beginning verse. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Go make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't not know if he's going to come back. So Aaron said to them, Okay, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with, grave, with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, man. Aaron, the high priest of God, the second in charge of Israel. Jeroboam didn't experience the, the, the passing of, of, of Egypt, of, of, of God liberating them with this amazing, miraculous power. Jeroboam wasn't there, but Aaron was there. Aaron experienced the miraculous aspect of God with his people, and with a little bit of pressure from the people, he caves, and he makes for them an idol. What kind of idol was it? A golden calf. A golden calf. And he says the same words, or Jeroboam uses the same words, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Aaron knows better. But the people, the people, it's always the people, the people pressured him because they lacked confidence in God's word. If you read the previous 32 chapters on Exodus, you'll realize that time and time again, God kept speaking to Moses, and Moses kept speaking to the people on behalf of God. God kept giving the people his word, word after word after word after word, and the people were sustained based off what God said, and still they lacked the confidence in their God, the one who did liberate them from Egypt. They still failed, fell short to really having confidence in God's word. That's always the case. That's, that was the case in Moses' time. Friends, that's the case now. 
That's the biggest problem with idols is that they bring you to doubt God's word. And many of us begin to live like the Israelites when we have already received the word. We have the divine word of God. It is here. It is in English. And some of us even have versions that make it even simpler to read. It's here. We can read it. And we still doubt. And we still don't have any confidence in our God because it says, if what he said just may not be true. And so when we think that this isn't true, when we don't have confidence in God's word, what do we begin to do? Well, let's think about this. Let's put our problems on Facebook. And let's see what the counsel of our Facebook friends will tell us. Let's put our stories up on Instagram. And let's sing a couple of songs on TikTok. I just found out what TikTok was this Wednesday night, so I had no idea what that was. Let, let's put ourselves out there and let's see what people will help us do. Because obviously the people have better, they have much better uh, counseling advice than the Word of God. It's always the case. So they pressured Aaron. They took off their earrings. Here, man, here, take my 24 karat earrings. Here, take my pearl earrings. Take it all. Take all my gold, and let's build ourselves this wonderful golden calf. A golden calf. I would always think, like, you know, a golden eagle, that would have been cool, or a tiger, a golden lion. But they build themselves a golden calf to symbolize the Canaanite gods of fertility. They built their god, and then what is even more sad, if you keep reading in chapter 32, In verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built the altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Not only did they build the calf, but they began a party after they built it. No remorse, complete ignorance of who God is, and they just began to party it up. Because obviously their calves were the ones that liberated from them. Here, I put together some some interesting commonalities between Aaron's calf and Jeroboam's calf. They're both a golden calf, but Jeroboam ups one from Aaron. He does two instead of one, kind of like, hey, man, I could do, I could do better. I could do two calves. Uh, in Aaron's case, in verse 5, he builds altars of sacrifice. Jeroboam does the same thing in, 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 in his case. He builds high places of worship and altars. In verse 6 of chapter 32, in Aaron's case, he does burnt offerings. And he gives offerings on these altars. And then he brings parties to the people. Jeroboam's case is the same thing. They have festivals, they have offerings, and they burn incest. All in the name of these wonderful calf idols. Now, what are the results? In these brief two minutes, I'm going to give you guys the results of these idols. What happened? Since you're still in Exodus, read verse 20, chapter 32. He took the calf that they had made, he's talking about Moses, with fire. No, he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. This lavishly gold-plated calf was turned into dust, was smashed by the man of God, Moses. Can you imagine all the women saying, oh, oh, my earrings, my golden pearls, smashed completely into pieces. And then what happens? Look at what happens, friends. This is the seriousness of it. Verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate through the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and, the, and, and that day 3,000 men of the people fell. Oof. 
We all remember the golden calf incident, but we don't remember what happens afterwards. The seriousness of idol worship, God destroys the idol, but then he destroys the idol worshipers. God destroys the idol and then destroys the idol worshipers. But don't think God is too too much of a bad guy on this. God, through Moses, says, who is on the Lord's side? God provides repentance opportunities. Who's on the Lord's side? Who's with God? And only the tribe of Levi went up with Moses. They forsook any other of their family members, any other of their their friends or brothers and sisters. They forsook everyone at the cost of God. Because with God, there is no compromise. We can never compromise. There is no compromise with God. You heed or you don't. But there is no compromise. And only the tribe of Levi had the gall and the, and, the, and, the, and the virtue to stand beside Moses as people of God. And then God said, release judgment. And people died. 3,000 people died because God's righteousness demands payment of sin. The people disobeyed God, and God came down with righteous anger over sin. And you may say, oh, it's a little bit mean. That's God. God destroys idols, and he also destroys idol worshipers. That's why Jesus, in the same Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, says there's two ways, friends. This way leads to destruction, and it's a big way. And it's a nice party-driven way. It's a pretty cool way to go. It's pretty fun. This way is a little bit more narrow and very difficult to navigate. But he says, go this way, because this way leads to life. This way leads to destruction. Why does God have a hell? Because there needs to be payment for unrepentant sin. That's where a lot of people in our culture today just don't understand that from God. Why is there a hell? That's just bad. Well, who's going to pay for sin? We see it in the beginning of, of, of Exodus, in the beginning of the Pentateuch. It's just God is righteously angry at sin. And it needs to be paid for. As a matter of fact, Moses later says, I will atone for this sin. These calves from Aaron and Jeroboam, Jeroboam's calf is demolished. The priests are, are ultimately demolished in Jeroboam's case. And a prophet prophesies to Jeroboam that someone will come 300 years later named King Josiah and he will destroy the priest that Jeroboam put around the altar, and then he will kill the priest on the altar. Another bloody sacrifice. Because they worshipped idols. There is no compromise with God. You're in or you're out. So with this final blow you go back to Hosea, I just want to close there. Had to rush through some other parts. In Hosea chapter 8, with their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf. God, that means God has rejected it. And then he says, My anger burns against Israel or them. God is angry because the people have substituted him. And then he says something that breaks my heart. He says, how long will they be incapable of innocence? That question is so true today. And, you know, there's there's more that we can touch on I have a couple more things, but I want to just leave with that. How long? How long will my people not be capable of innocence? 
The question to you is, how long? How long will you run from God to worship other idols? Friends, the day is coming when those idols will be destroyed and you can go along with them to destruction. Or today, you can go the path of the righteous and seek after God and ask for repentance. So, though I don't like comparing myself, I'm here as Moses. Who will stand with God? Who will be on God's side? How long, how much longer will you keep running away from God doing idol worship? I don't know what it is. I don't know what idols you've built in your life. I don't know what those idols are. But they're very real for many of us. Question is, how long? Let's stand up and pray. Father, we, we acknowledge your, your presence before us, amongst us, and your grace that has covered us up until this day. Grace that has allowed us time this is time that is a time of grace. You are passing over our sins. Father, that we realize that as children of God, we are not designed to go after other gods because they are not you. And they are figments of man's imagination, idols built by the hands of man. And Father, today, we ask for repentance. We repent. Because we know that you had to crush your son for our sin. And now the reason why we're standing here today is because of that. So, Father, we repent by the blood of Jesus. We've been healed, and we're returning to you because you're the one that has liberated us from our sin, no one else. Thank you for being gracious over us and for loving us still. We pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say, amen.